And so last week, Jesus heals a man, that Jesus, Peter, Jesus heals a man through Peter uh, on the way to the temple. And at first, you know, people don't know what to do with this. This man who is lame is now healed and the crowds are coming. And Peter says, don't look at me. This is all about Jesus. We're not powerful enough. It's not about our piety. It's about Jesus, the risen one. And this week we see the story that we're about to read is five minutes after the story we read last week. It's sort of still continuing. Uh, the common folks have sort of been gathered around, ooing and awing, and now the re- religious leaders are coming and they're kind of ticked. The temptation, I think, um, maybe not when we're reading the Bible, not when we're reading people frustrated at the apostles, but we think about, you know, in the olden days, it sure must have been a whole lot easier to talk about Jesus. That, that somehow we've convinced ourselves that it was easier once upon a time to talk about Jesus, that somehow once upon a time Jesus was less controversial. One of the things this passage reminds us is simply not true. Jesus has always been controversial. He's always been polarizing. He's always drawing people to himself, but some people find themselves repelled from who he is and what he offers. And so it's simply not true that there was a time when it was easier to talk about Jesus because, well, always there have been forces, evil forces at work united against Jesus and his kingdom. That the devil who is real hates what Jesus stands for, hates who he is. And never mind him, our own hearts left to our own devices, we really don't like him either. And so what we're going to read is how God is interacting through His apostles, through those who are in opposition to Him. So let's read Acts 4, 1 through 22. As Peter and John uh, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were with the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, let it be known to all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the men, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would do a work in us just as you did a work in this, this man who had been lame for 40 years. Um, you remind us that even when it looks like situations can't change, won't change, you can change them and you can change us. And so we ask that you would. That's why a number of us are here. And for those of us who aren't sure why we're here, we pray that you would meet us, that you would show us Jesus to be more lovely and more believable than we thought possible. We need you to give us eyes to see and to dig out for us ears to hear, because unless you do that, we can't see and we, we, won't, we won't hear. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so what's the first thing that happens in this passage right off the bat? It starts with confrontation. Peter and John are talking, right, to the people who have gathered to see, what did you just do to this man? You healed him. How did you do this? They're speaking, uh, and the priest and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, some of you remember the Sadducees. That's, that's the big sort of group that we're dealing with here. They're one of two main parties in ancient Judaism, especially in Jesus' day and Paul's day. There are the Sadducees and there are the Pharisees. And we tend to, if you've been used to hearing those names in the Bible, we tend to sort of lump them together. Oh, those are the bad guys. They play on that team. But that's really not how it was at all, they were rivals, rival religious sects. They didn't see the Bible the same way at all, and they only seem unified to us because what unifies enemies more than a common enemy? And so the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees seem like they get chummy because neither one of them really like Jesus. And now his apostles are stirring up the same kind of trouble, preaching the same name. We just can't get rid of this guy. I think in our own country, and our, as, as divided as we are, when were we, were we most unified? It was right after 9-11. It was right after Republicans and Democrats could actually see eye to eye on what a common enemy was. There was union. So who are the Sadducees? Theologically, they were a little bit more liberal than the Pharisees. Um, they didn't believe in a general resurrection. And a general resurrection is this idea that one day, generally, right, everyone will be raised for judgment. We will be raised and some will either go into glory or some will go into hell, right? But the idea is that everyone, there's a general resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe this. And they didn't believe in angels either. They really didn't believe in much of the supernatural and so it makes perfect sense that they are annoyed at Peter and John who have come into the temple of all places and started preaching a general resurrection, specifically a resurrection for God's people in Jesus. Now, why do they confront Peter? Why do they confront John? It's because it's their job. 
You see, Peter and John are not sanctioned to speak in the, in the temple. In verse 7, they ask them, right after they've arrested them, they're dealing with them, they ask them, by what power and by what name did you do this? Now last week, when they healed this man, you remember the people came and they're like, wow, how, what, what is this? And they're like, it's Jesus. They're like, how did you do this? Not our piety, not our power, it's Jesus Christ. That's not what's happening now. They're not saying, wow, this is remarkable. How in the world did you do What power did you do this? Instead, they're saying, do you have a license to be preaching here? What business do you have being here exactly? You don't have the credentials to be speaking this mess in this place. We guard the temple. We're the ones who get to decide who speaks. Thank you very much. By what power are you doing this? By whose name are you speaking? That's kind of what's happening here. You see, they're not on the guest list. And technically, they are sanctioned by Jesus himself. But guess what? He's not on the guest list. He's not very popular in this place either. And so when they come to them, they're just doing their jobs. They're just not very good at their jobs. Which tells us how corrupted the political or the religious establishment had become. God had entrusted with the temple and those who guarded the temple to guard the truth. And so these men don't need to protect the temple from Peter and John. They need to protect the temple from themselves. They need to protect the temple from the protectors because they've lost the way. They don't recognize truth when they hear it. In verse 8 we read, Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, right here, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, because that's why we're here, we did something amazing that you can't deny, but you won't acknowledge that right now. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing well. Well, who qualifies us to be here? Well, we've got some good news and some bad news regarding that. Good news is we have an answer. Uh, Jesus Christ qualifies us to be here. He personally sanctioned us to preach in His name to make disciples. Um, the one who was dead. And death could not hold Him. He's alive. That's the good news. The bad news is the reason He was dead is, well, you killed Him. So you don't like Him, and you probably won't like what we have to say. So you probably won't approve of our credentials because they're alien to you. I mean, what, this is sort of like if I went to shopping, um, looking online shopping. Imagine if I went to a store, a brick and mortar store, and it's like, I'd like to buy a, a television or, or whatever. And they said, that's fine. Do you have any money? Of course I have money. All of this Canadian money. And say, um, get out of here. That's not money. That doesn't, that doesn't work here. By what power are you, are you proclaiming? Are you preaching? Are you teaching? By the name of Jesus. Get that Canadian money out of here. That's kind of the situation that we have up here. Um, how nerve-wracking, joking aside, how nerve-wracking would this be? Authorities have arrested them. Right? They're not just standing like confrontation, you know, like a you know, fender bender and will they, won't they, or are they going to come to fisticuffs? Like, no, they are arrested. 
They have actual authority over them. Well, who gives you the right to be here? And they say, the man you hated enough to kill. This is a tense situation. Uh, my, my first um, Valentine's date with Melissa. So we're dating. We're still kind of getting to know each other. And, and I take her to you know, a nice restaurant, right? There's Bonefish Grill, so a chain nice restaurant. And Melissa used to do this thing where uh, she would, she was too cheap to order lemonade, even if somebody else is paying. So what she would do is she would put sweet and low in water with lemon, stir it up. It's awful. It's disgusting. So she finishes one of these, uh, you know, four woman lemonades, and she decides that she's going to get ready, right? Oh. Don't want to miss out on this goodness any later than I have to. I'm going to go ahead and put this sweet and low in here. So when she pours in the water, it's half stirred. I can just go. And so she comes over. She puts her sweet and low in there. And, and the waitress walks over and she grabs it. And she looks down in there and she sees the powder. And she looks at me. And she looks at the powder. And she looks at Melissa. She looks at Melissa again. She goes, do you know this is in here? And then she looks back at me as if to imply... What have you put in here, you creep? And I, I'm just looking with a deer in the headlights, like, Melissa, say something, you know, like, I was frozen. Like, I jokingly said later, I should have just, like, when she did that, like, just gotten up and run. Like, how funny would that have been? But I could come up with things I should have done after the fact, because in the moment, it was just like, uh, 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 you know, deer in the headlights. I had an actual answer to give. Uh, yes, she knows it's in there. She put it in there. I'm drinking a, a store-bought drink over here. Like, give me, give me a break. Peter's answer might get him killed. Who gives you the right to be here? Jesus Christ. Do you remember him the night that Jesus is betrayed? Judas betrays him. Peter is sort of grandstanded. If they all betray you, I would never do that. And then... A little servant girl comes up to Peter and says, you know Jesus, don't you? And he's like, no, not me. Yes, yes, you do. You know, no, no, I don't. And he like invokes a curse on himself. Like, you know, may I be damned if I knew this man. I don't know the man. I swear to God. And he did know the man. He just he crumbled under the pressure of this intimidating little girl. Now he's actually been arrested with people of re with real authority who can actually hurt him. And they say, what are you doing? And by whose authority do you do this? And he says, I do this by the authority of the man that you killed. He's full of confidence. He's not flaking. He's not crumbling. He is full of confidence. And how is it that he's so confident? Verse 8 tells us, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit in Peter's life has totally changed him. And it's not only changed him, it's changed this situation. What has the, the Holy Spirit done? What has he done in, in Peter's life? Well, not a lot of things, but two things at least. He has convinced Peter that the Jesus that he knew he knew very well that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus, Jesus who is resurrected is still alive and is still for him. He knows this. He also knows, the Holy Spirit has also given him the confidence that he does not naturally, in and of himself, will ask him 
hard things and difficult situations, but not now. The Holy Spirit has done something in him that is enabling to do something that he would not do left to his own devices. So here's what Peter knows. Temple, you know, court here does not believe in a general resurrection, okay? They don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Therefore, they don't believe that Jesus has been called to speak here, even though he has just healed a man to validate the claims that he is bringing to the table. So we have an obvious worldview clash here. Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from the dead, on his name, on that basis, I can speak. And they say, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, I don't think so. An obvious sort of worldview clash. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter speaks into what is certain conflict. There's no middle ground embracing resurrection. There's no compromise reachable. Halfway resurrection, halfway alive, right? Like resurrection, yes, or resurrection, no. Those are the only two options available. And we see this in our own culture too, even if for very different reasons. Science has one category for resurrection. Impossible. Like, death is death. Resurrection is impossible. And I love science. This is not anti-science. You guys are better at science than I am, and I love that. I'm mystified by some of the conversations you have, especially in small group. I wonder sometimes, though, if there are pockets of our culture, a lot big pockets of our culture, that expect too much of science. If science helps us in many ways to understand the created order, how God made things, how they work the way they do. Science helps us with that. But it's never meant to help us answer every question. It's not supposed to answer our spiritual questions. It can't, for example, answer our questions about love. What is love? What is true love? How do you know if you are really in love? Science is not going to help you there. It can't answer for us why we find meaning in beauty. Whether it's the Grand Canyon or a blue sky for the first time in a long time, whether it's a classic sonnet or a Lennon-McCartney harmony, science can't tell us why we intuit that there is deep meaning to, to things that are beautiful. It can't even tell us what is beautiful. Is there objective beauty? It, Science can't really help us with that. You see, we see and we hear and we feel love and beauty in this life because we were designed to find love and beauty in this life. And anything that is loving and anything that is beautiful ultimately points us back to the one who is love and beauty. That's why we're wired that way. That's why love is so, is so powerful to us. That's why art is so important. We're wired for it. Because our appreciation for that reminds us of what we were made to appreciate and worship supremely, God. And at best, science will say, well, we've got some receptors going on up here, and when you feel something with somebody else and you're supposed to, you know, keep the species going on, then you're going to... No, it's that, there's more to it than that. It's got to be. All love and beauty points us back to the one whose ultimate love 
and beauty. Now here's the point. It's a point that Peter is well aware of in this moment. Christians see the world very differently from non-Christians. And if you, if you express your worldview, that is a world that is consistent with Jesus Christ raised for the dead, from the dead, you should expect some pushback along the way. There will be a worldview conflict. One of the things we learn is that when we follow Jesus, people are going to ask you why you do what you do. Why you think the way you think. When I was dating Melissa, people often assumed that we were, they just assumed we were sleeping together. And so like somebody would say something and it maybe it wasn't the nicest thing and I would say, ah, actually that's not really, that's not true of us. And like, you're kidding me. You haven't slept with your girlfriend. Why not? What's wrong with you? When you follow Jesus, people will ask you what is going on with you. Why won't you laugh at that joke? You know, just laughing at a joke doesn't actually make you racist. You can laugh at that. Why won't you laugh at that? Why are you hanging out with her again? She always ruins the fun. She never gets any of the jokes. What do you mean you have to get up early and go to church tomorrow? What's that about? After all you've been through, suffering, pain, how can you still believe in a loving God? The point I'm trying to make is people ask questions related to your faith more often than we think. We may not be brought up before the authorities anytime soon, but if we're following Jesus, people are going to ask us about that. And you might think, well, people don't ask me questions like this. Think again. How do we answer questions that we get? What do you mean you haven't slept with your girlfriend? Why not? Well, we just want to wait for the right time. We don't want to rush things. I said both of those things. Both of those are honest answers, by the way. But so is this. Well, of course I want to. Are you kidding me? But saying yes to Jesus means saying no to this. Look, Christians come across as insincere enough, right? There, there are times when we force Jesus into a conversation that we really shouldn't force him into. It comes across as insincere. It comes across as manipulative. This is what we call it. And I don't know if I've mentioned this before. Jesus juke. Have you heard me talk about this? Jesus juke. Some of you, yeah? You remember what this is, right? It's when somebody says something and then you make it about Jesus and you sort of make them feel guilty at the same time. It's a two for one. Um, hey, the game, did you go to the game on Saturday? It was awesome. The crowd was going nuts. No, I, I didn't. But, you know, isn't it a shame that we don't go as nuts on Sunday worshiping the Lord? <laughs> yes, yes, that's what I was going to say next. Thanks for doing that. That's a Jesus juke. Campus minister, friend of mine, does RUF somewhere else. He posted a few months back. He said, um, just witnessed a guy on a skateboard playing a ukulele. Hashtag college. And I'm not kidding. Like the first comment on there was, this sentence should have read, just witnessed to a guy on a skateboard playing a ukulele. How do I delete this guy? Like, get out of here. That's a Jesus juke. When you force a conversation to be about Jesus and then sort of make someone feel artificial guilt all at the same time. Christians can be the worst. We can be the worst. 
We shouldn't do that. Jesus jukes are a bad idea. Don't force Jesus into conversations artificially. It doesn't come across as authentic. But neither should we force him out of a conversation. I know we talk about this a lot, but it's a conversation worth having, and it's something we should continue to think about. Because when you have to think your way out of using Jesus' name in a conversation, it's time to rethink the priorities of the conversation. And I'm talking to me too. It's easy to sort of think, how am I going to avoid Jesus on this one? Who do I think made heaven and earth? Like, no one's going to ask you that, but sometimes it feels like that. Like, um, I'm hiding my Bible. I don't know how I'm going to answer this. We force him out of conversations. We're supposed to, of course, we want to be winsome. We don't want to force, we don't want to deal with artificial guilt, right? But Jesus has created us to admire him, to see him as beautiful, to love him, and he's created us to want to talk about him with others. That's not the only thing he's created us for. He's created us for so many other things, but he has created us to talk about him, especially when our worldviews are clashing and you sort of want you are wondering about what makes me tick, and I can tell you what makes me tick, and you might not like it, and I'm not trying to be mean, but it's about Jesus, the risen one from the dead. Like Peter, we have been given the Holy Spirit, who can empower us to speak the truth and love with confidence when the situation is merely awkward or like Peter's situation where the consequences could be more dire. Could it be that the Holy Spirit is actually at work in you? Could it be that, that Jesus, through His Spirit, is actually working in you to make you more confident, just like He made Peter more confident? Could it be that Jesus has no intention of leaving you to your own devices? That there are ways that you have responded to situations in the past that you feel shame over, that you wish you could redo, and Jesus is not concerned with your past. He's already dealt with your past. Could it be that He's changing you now for the future when you need it? You see, when Christians talk about faith in Jesus, sometimes you're like, what is faith in Jesus? It really means believing His promises. Do you have faith in Jesus? That means you would believe His promises. If you're wondering, what would it mean for me to have faith in Jesus? It would mean believing His promises. His promise to forgive, wash away, wipe away your sins, not count them against you. That's a promise that you would believe by faith in Jesus. To have His perfect, obedient life, what we call righteousness, given to you, that that's what would be on your spiritual resume, received by faith alone, that's a promise to believe. That's what it would look like. It means I have faith in Jesus. To trust that you might be more bold in a given situation than you would be without the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? To believe that promise. And so for the third time in Acts, we're in chapter 4. For the third time in four chapters so far, Peter's presentation goes like this. You killed him, and God raised him from the dead. Why does Peter talk about human guilt every single time he talks about the resurrection from the dead? I think because it's central to understanding the resurrection of the dead. 
talking about Jesus inevitably leads to talking about human guilt. And not fake guilt, not artificial guilt, not Jesus juke guilt. Guilt before God. And the Bible tells us that God's wrath is His just response to guilt. But Peter knows that there's another way. Peter tells us the good news in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else but this risen Jesus. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The hope, the very hope of Christianity is controversial because the center of it is Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Either He's who He says He is, or He isn't. Either He's the only way of salvation, or He isn't. There's no middle ground. And here's the thing, Peter, he's in an argument, but his mission is not simply to win an argument. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Peter knows, it means that my sins will not be held against me. Jesus dealt with my sins. That when I rejected Jesus in front of a little girl, Jesus died for that. I bring failure to the table. I bring fear of talking about Jesus to the table. And when I talk about the resurrection from the dead, I'm not talking about my spiritual resume. I'm talking about the one who gives me hope in spite of myself. I've rejected Jesus and I am forgiven. And I'm talking to you, leaders, who reject Jesus. You're just like me. He will deal with your sins. He will deal with your rejection of Him. He will cleanse you. He will wash you if you put your trust in His name. He's the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. Trust Him. Believe that Jesus Christ has actually been raised from the dead. And belief, this belief means that you can have assurance in your faith. His resurrection means renewed purpose in your life. Peter knows that Jesus' kingdom is on the move, it's expanding, and he knows that he has the privilege of playing a part in that. His kingdom expands when we talk about him. When people ask us about why we do what we do, the kingdom expands. Peter's not simply trying to tell people that they're sinful. He's trying to tell people that Jesus wins over sin. Jesus has the final word over sin. He's no interest in merely being right. He's not trying to win an argument, worldview conquest, right? That's not what he's doing. Peter's offering eternal life because where there is no eternal life, there's only death and punishment. And see, if, if you would be a follower of Jesus... It means trusting that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And so Peter, who was once timid, speaks with boldness for the sake of others. For the sake of others who have the power to persecute him. And so is his boldness met with with awe and wonder and and gratitude? No. Um, After some deliberation, the council, they further threaten him. And they tell him in verse 21, basically, shut up about Jesus or else. And Peter and John say, well, we can't. We can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. We can't help but talk about 
the one, the risen one who's changed our lives. Just after this passage, you can read it, it's just like five verses after this. Peter and John, they go with the, the rest of the church and they pray together. And they don't pray, um, well, I don't think they pray that this persecution would stop necessarily. It's not recorded for us. Maybe they pray for that. What they do pray for is boldness. God, would you make us bold? Because we've got to go face them again and others like them again. And we don't want to stop talking about you. They don't say make it stop. They say make us bold. And then in chapter 5, they're brought back before these men and they're beaten for it. They're beaten for talking about Jesus. And they say, stop. Imagine being beaten simply because you refuse to talk about Jesus. God did not keep them physically comfortable in all of their circumstances, but He continued to give them boldness. He continued to give them confidence in who Jesus Christ was and what He did, not just simply in a vacuum, but for them. And it empowered them, and it changed the way they thought about everything. So what does this passage mean for us? Well, at the, very, at the very least, if you would follow Jesus, there will be pushback along the way. And I'm not saying it's going to look like this. But that wouldn't mean that Jesus wasn't for you if it did look like this. And yet, that's not the only reaction to Christians that we should expect. In the second chapter, when things are sort of blowing and going in this early church, we read, And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and, listen, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts wants to give us a full picture of a response to Jesus. Some people are really going to hate what Christians have to say, and some people are just going to say, I'm not convinced by what you're saying, but I'm really drawn to you while others are going to say, I'm in. I'm in. Jesus, you say, I, I, I already know that he knows me. He's forgiven me, and I love him. And you're going to see this sort of mixture of responses, outright hostility. I'm kind of drawn to you, but I don't buy it, and I love it. What Acts is showing us is the world has a love-hate relationship with the church, and this is natural because the world had a love-hate relationship with Jesus. He was winsome, and he was loving, and yet some people attacked him. So you can expect pushback if you proclaim a message of Jesus, but you should really expect a pushback if you're cold and insensitive. Because Jesus was warm and winsome, and people were drawn to him. The early church was warm and winsome, and people were drawn to them, and they hated them. It's a mixed bag. And so what we're called to do is communicate the truth in love, warmly, winsomely, invitingly, not with a chip on our shoulders. Some people will hate it, but some people will say, I'm drawn to you and I don't know why. And others will say, God just flipped a switch in my heart and I love him. And if you would be a Christian, that means that you'll be charged with carrying this message of the hope of a risen Jesus wherever you go. Because you know and you love that salvation is found nowhere else. Which part of your brain lights up when you hear, 
Jesus is calling us to be willing to speak about him. For some of us, a part of wants to just sort of argue about religion lights up. I, don't, I like arguing. And for another part of us, it's fear. And for another part, it's this really is what loving people looks like. And I'm scared for it. I'm scared about it. But it's right. And I want to be a part of that. Because you know that what you are called to carry is actually good news, even if people can't hear it. Sometimes we pray for opportunities to share the gospel, and then we don't see the opportunities to share when a worldview conflict comes our way. And if you feel guilty, I mean, I've said this before, that's not the point. Jesus deals with your guilt. The cross is as big as we say it is every week. Your sin has been dealt with. Your sin of not talking about Jesus has been dealt with. Guilt is the worst motivator, and it won't last long if that's what motivates you. What motivates Peter? The Holy Spirit. His power is convincing that Jesus is who he says he is, and he will change Peter. I will give you confidence. That's what motivates Peter. And Jesus' death and resurrection will mean the same thing for us. We are free from our past sins. The Holy Spirit will fill us with confidence to speak in opposition. Really briefly, let's just further apply this. I just want to say, for application, pray, look, and commit. Pray. I don't mean think about praying about this. Like, go home and pray. And say, I'm going to go home and pray every day that God would give me an opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. Pray for boldness and keep praying for boldness. And here's the thing, if you're afraid to do this, afraid to, to talk about Jesus, that doesn't mean you don't want to. Some of you know this experience. I was terrified to ask out my wife. I was terrified to ask her to marry me. Every, every important milestone in my life with her, I was terrified to do. I didn't want to do it on some level, but I deeply wanted to do it so much more on another. If you're afraid to talk about Jesus, it doesn't mean that that's not what you actually want to do. Sometimes we want to do what we're afraid of. And God helps us and gives us confidence to do that. So pray, look. Look for opportunities to talk about Him. Look for opportunities to invite people to RUF, or invite, you, invite them to church, invite them to join you with friends, and commit. Commit to taking advantage of the opportunities you see. Look for those opportunities, but then commit to taking advantage of them. Commit to saying things like, salvation is found only in Jesus, the risen one. His life for your life. His death for your life. And by God's grace, we will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for Peter and John. Thank you for the examples that they give us. But more importantly, thank you that you have given and offer the same Spirit to us. And we need your help. We need your Spirit. And so fill us with confidence for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.